So this week we are um, kind of starting that mini-series on the five solas, the five alones. Um, And this one's going to be a little bit different. I'm going to have to bring in some historical information first off to kind of get us there. You kind of see your notes there. Um, We will get into scripture. We're not going to tear apart every little verse. Um, Just trying to give kind of a good big picture understanding of what we're talking about here. So, and we're going to be looking at um, each of these over the next few weeks. There are five. There happens to be five Sundays this month. Um, So we will take one sola a week, uh, and we will end with the last one, glory to God, on the last Sunday of the month. So we're going to look first at some historical information here. Well, what are the solas? Well, briefly, the solas are five doctrinal principles that separate most evangelical denominations from the Roman Catholic Church, even today. Now, I say evangelical denominations and not Protestant. Other people are going to say Protestant denominations. Um, But most Baptists don't consider themselves Protestant because we're not... But that, that's a further, that's a different topic. Um, but we'll, I'll explain a little bit of that here in a little bit. Um, I do want to mention that I know that there are uh, some here that may be listening that have family connections with the Catholic, Catholic Church. And while I disagree with some of the doctrines and practices, uh, my intention now and over the next few weeks is just to explain some historical information and to give some background as to how these doctrines were kind of rediscovered is the common word, and to elaborate on them a little bit more that even we as Baptists agree with to some degree. But why do I say that we as Baptists would agree with these to some degree? Well, we're not Reformed. There are Baptists who are more specifically Reformed. They follow Reformed doctrine a little bit closely. And as I mentioned, some would even say that we aren't Protestant either. Protestant In a large sense, yes. In a very specific sense, no. Um, But there are some nuances and finer points with which we would disagree on some of these doctrines. Now, because part of it also is that there were reformers holding to some of these doctrines and even more Baptistic doctrines well before 1517. Some hold that, the, that since the apostles, there have been different groups that held many, if not all, the doctrines that Baptists hold to today. Now, the solas, as a group, were not conveniently packaged together as a clear summation until the 20th century. But they are seen in the writings of the reformers during that time. And the solas are traditionally presented in a specific order. I said there's, there's five of them. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. I should explain sola. Uh, each of these phrases are a Latin phrase. A sola being alone. And you're going to see that, that recurring here. So the first is sola scriptura, Scripture alone, where the final authority for life and doctrine, personal and the church, is Scripture alone. The next is sola gratia, 
or grace alone. Salvation is from God's unmerited favor. Then sole fide, faith alone, justification from God. Solus Christus, Christ alone, Christ's sacrifice is all that is required. It is sufficient. And lastly, soli dea gloria, deo gloria, glory of God alone. Salvation is ultimately for God's glory. Like I said, there's a little bit of a specific order. That's generally how they are listed. Um, Had I been thinking about it, I would have taken them in order and just moved the Lord's table further down the month. But I didn't think about that until it was too late. So we are going to start with Solus Christus, Christ alone. And we're going to look at how this doctrinal concept is of the utmost importance for, to the gospel and to true Christianity. Now, there is scriptural basis for it. The scriptural basis was rediscovered, if you will, by the reformers in a time when cultural and educational movements pr- promoted going to sources of antiquity. What does that mean? That means they went back to the Hebrew Bible, back to the Greek New Testament, and began translating directly from that rather than a Latin middle ground. So it was more common to go and study the Hebrew and make the translation than it was to just learn Latin, which was the educational language, and just take from whatever previous translation was done. It was go back to the Hebrew text, go back to the Greek text, and study and bring them out. Now, the doctrine of Christ alone is interwoven with grace and faith, so there will be some overlap. Uh, As we get through it, there's just, there's no way to really separate these three out. They're all kind of overlapped, but I will look at the other two specifically later on as well. Now, this element of the gospel called into question several aspects of the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church, especially in the 16th century. A major belief of the Roman Church is that while Christ is the exclusive Savior of humanity, the Church mediates grace from Christ. Well, how do they do that? Through sacraments. Sacraments are elements of grace. Sacraments were channels through which grace flowed to those in the pew, and sacraments had to be administered by the church and by the priest, bishop, whoever. Especially important, there, were, there are seven sacraments, but especially important were baptism, the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, and penance, or otherwise known as confession. So let's take a look at these three real quick and kind of get it under groundwork understanding of where we're at. Baptism washed away the original sin, including the guilt and punishment from Adam's sin, and places the individual or child, into a state of grace. But everyone is able to sin after baptism, and baptism is only done once. 
Now, there may be a possibility if you get excommunicated and you come back, you will be rebaptized into the church, but baptism is done once. It washes away Adam's original sin and guilt and punishment and brings you into a state of grace from that point, but you can still make sins afterwards. And since baptism is not repeatable, what do you do once you sin after baptism? Well, there, there are other sacraments, primarily the Eucharist. This is the Lord's Supper. This, was a fo- this is a focal point of the Mass. Especially the Eucharist, but most of the sacraments automatically distribute grace to the recipient despite the holiness of the officiant of the priest or the faith of the recipient. Once the priest blesses the elements and they are turned into the, into the blood and flesh of Christ, if he loses his holiness, it's still elemented. It's the elements that distribute grace. And as long as you are not flat out resisting grace, as long as you are taking it, doesn't matter how little faith you have, as long as you are accepting it, you're getting the grace from it. So it would be one thing if they came and said, are you body and blood? And you go, no, that's flat out resisting it. But if you go, sure, you still receive the grace from the elements. The elements confer the grace because they have been turned into the blood and flesh of Christ, though the wine and the bread still remain in their appearance. Um, and at the, at, in, in Luther's time, it was common that the wine was being withheld because they didn't want it to be spilled than to defile the blood. So that goes into a further argument later on with Luther. Um, But that's the Eucharist. That's why the Eucharist, that's why the Lord's Supper was so important during the Mass. Penance. Penance is also a repeatable action to receive grace for those sins that were committed after baptism. Penance required the sinner to be truly sorrowful and to, uh, of his or her sin, um, to be contrite over that sin, and then to confess it to a priest who grants absolution from the guilt of sin because you are sorrowful and you're repenting of it and you're confessing it, and then assigns work or works of satisfaction to pay off the temporal punishment. Fasting, giving of alms, prayers, pilgrimages, going to more masses during the week, or even especially at the time, the purchasing of indulgences. You could make a good enough offering towards the indulgences and pay off your sin or pay off a sin for a family member or friend in purgatory. What really got Luther going on this was another bishop priest in the area who had a little ditty of a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. 
Luther really didn't like that. But those three made, play a major part in, in looking at these doctrines. From, from that standpoint, simple trust in Christ alone was not enough. Christ was in the church, and the church was in Christ. So the church administered grace through Christ to those in the pews. Now, there's a very brief, broad explanation of some, some finer points. Rome's theology of salvation, though complex, makes a certain matter makes a certain matter of sense when you understand the view of humanity that they have as a starting point. It was believed that you had to start with humanity and move up to God's grace. After Genesis 3, with the fall of, fall of man into sin, the human nature was distorted by sin, but not damaged, so that one could still cooperate with God's grace, called synergism. So mankind was injured by sin's effects, losing the righteousness that Adam possessed, but not so badly that one could not do good things of merit and either cooperate with or resist grace. God would infuse grace into the humans, and this infusion of grace would happen through the church, through the sacraments, into the human nature, and as a process where one was made intrinsically more righteous through this infusion of grace. This infusion was needed if one was to merit to earn remission of sins and earn eternal life. That was the introduction. <laughs> Our first point here is the sin problem. The sin problem. The problem is still sin. But we're going to start with a different view of humanity. And I think this is what really brought out, and you see this in some of the Reformers' doctrine, but we see this in Scripture, that there's a different view of humanity and a view that says sin has penetrated every facet of human nature. So if you're going to do subpoints, the first subpoint is total depravity. I didn't put subpoints under there. I just left space for you to take notes, but you can do that if you wish. So we're going to talk about total depravity for a minute. Well, more than a minute. Uh, when Adam sinned, he passed down the guilt of that sin and the morally corrupt nature to all humanity. This sin nature became part of every human. All humanity was guilty of Adam's original sin, but everybody also had their own propensity to sin as well. So every person is bent towards sin. This doesn't mean that every sinner is as bad as they could be. This doesn't mean that sinners can't do good or noble things. It's a good or noble thing. If, if a, a soldier throws himself on a grenade and sacrifices himself for his comrades, that's a good or a noble thing. It doesn't earn merit with God. We can still 
look on uh, awe and wonder and, and, and be grateful for what that soldier d- did, but it doesn't earn grace. It doesn't earn or merit anything with God. Um, now, total depravity also, it, it, it doesn't mean that sinners don't have a conscience concerning God. They understand a God or something out there, but it doesn't mean, but, but they, so they're, they're not ignorant of that conscience of God. It also doesn't mean that every sinner will indulge in every form of sin. But depravity does mean that every part of humanity and all of a person is tainted by sin. Uh, It means that everybody has the capacity for the worst kinds of sin. Not that everybody will commit all of them, like I said, but everyone has the capacity to commit the worst kinds of sin. Paul offers two lists of this in scripture in, in Romans that describes some of the more heinous sins. We'll look at one of these, Romans 1, 18 to 32 and chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. We won't look at those now. We'll get to one here in a minute. Uh, depravity means that when a sinner does good, it isn't for God's glory. Therefore, it is selfish. It also means that the unsaved have no love for God. Total depravity also means that the human race gets progressively worse. Again, not that all are as bad as they could be, but generally it keeps getting worse. Now, do we see this in Scripture? I referenced a couple of passages before. Do we see this idea of total depravity in Scripture? Yes, we're going to look at one of those passages, Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. As it was written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, Paul wrote those in Romans 3, but Paul is actually quoting from several passages, various psalms. He's quoting from six different psalms in that passage. He's quoting Proverbs 1.16, Ecclesiastes 7.2, and Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8, all in that passage. Now, in their individual context, there's other things going on. But Paul has gathered them together in that context of Romans and says, this is humanity. This is humanity without Christ. Now, why he didn't add this next verse, I don't know, but we're going to reference it as well. 
Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says there is excuse me the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it between that and all the other things that Paul listed there in, in Romans 3 all of human nature is touched Today we hear, trust your heart. Let your, listen to your heart. Do what your heart tells you to do. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Now there are other passages like Ephesians 4, 17 to 19. Um, Go ahead and read this quick. Ephesians 4, verses 17 and 19. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul is describing the, un, the unsaved at that point. That because, because of their condition, because of their sinfulness, they are alienated from life in God. Because of that, they, there is a level of ignorance about it. It's about, primarily about God. Their, their heart is blinded because of this ignorance. They are past feeling, given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness, with greediness. Paul also describes in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, the dead life sinners have. That we are dead in trespasses and sin. Children of wrath. So, we see sin and the depravity of humanity, total depravity in Scripture. And we can't base total depravity, the total depravity of humanity on humanity. I can't, in my sinfulness, look around and, and judge how great the total depravity is. In my sinfulness, I'm going to look around and say, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm better than that. Sure, I've made mistakes. I've told a couple of white lies, but I'm not like that guy. I'm not pointing at David. I'm pointing somewhere. <laughs> we can't base total depravity of humanity on looking at humanity. It has to be measured against God's holiness. We're still under the sin problem, but this brings us to another little point here, God's holiness. Holiness in Scripture is understood as a separation from what is unclean or common. So when this is applied to God, we say that he is separate from all evil and uncleanliness, but that he is also pure and distinct from everyone and everything else. The holiness of God is generally understood as the fundamental or foundational attribute of God. 
that it has a, a maybe a slightly higher priority among God's attributes. Now, this, of course, is just a, a theological understanding. It is not intended to mean that God started as holy and then added other attributes. What we tend to mean by that is that holiness isn't necessarily more important than the other attributes, but it's seen holiness, for God to be holy, there's a level of self-governing, and it seems to be governing the other attributes. To say that God is love is true, but if love is the foundational element and he does everything out of his love, then what is there to keep him from violating his righteousness? Holiness comes along and says, yes, love, but we're holy, and you've governed that slightly. And we see God is holy throughout Scripture. We see in Isaiah 57, 15, his name is holy. In Psalm 47, verse 8, his throne is holy. In Psalm 89, verse 35, and Amos 4, verse 2, God swears by his own holiness. And in Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, and Revelation 4, 8, holiness is ascribed to him in praise. With God's holiness as the standard and the total depravity of sin, of the sin nature of humans we see from Scripture, then there really doesn't seem to be any hope. There doesn't seem to be any reason to believe that people are basically good or able to cooperate with God by trying their best. No person can do anything to merit grace or salvation from God. So what's the answer? And this will be large point number two, the, the answer. And we're going to see this in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. Go ahead and read these verses. Romans 3, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, if we stand, if we, if we stand with the problem of, of man's sin nature and we look at level of God's holiness, we see that he has, there were three options open to him. He could have chosen any of these. He could have chosen to just condemn sinners, not done anything about it. I am holy. You have sinned. Condemn. He could have chose to compromise 
his righteousness and holiness and receive sinners as they are. Or he could change sinners into righteous people. God chose to act to change the unrighteous into righteous. How? This is our passage here, Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The law tells us of God's righteousness and gives us the knowledge of sin that we violate God's righteousness. That's verse 20 of this passage. God acts apart from the law, not violating it, but works apart from the law by providing righteousness through Jesus Christ, through faith. So now we look at Christ's sacrifice in verses 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. The blood of Christ was the price. Christ redeemed us through his blood, Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We read that passage this morning. Christ's sacrifice was acceptable. Verse 25 tells us that God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is God's wrath being turned away, being appeased by the offering of Christ. We looked a couple, uh, a few Sundays ago, that Christ, became, uh, 2 Corinthians says, Christ who knew no sin became sin for us. And we looked at that moment when he took the wrath of God on the cross. That was the propitiation. He was the payment. He was appeasing. He was the sacrifice. And what is the result? We see in verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier. By no means of merit or work from any person, God makes the unrighteous righteous in Christ. We are talking about two aspects known in theology as justification and imputation. Justification is a legal word. It is the declaring of a verdict of righteous. While imputation in the realm of theology is defined as the action or process of ascribing something to someone else. Now here is where we, or at least I, am going to differ from, some, from the Reformed theology a little bit. When we accept Christ as Savior, a number of things happen, but we're only going to talk about two, justification and imputation. When we accept Christ as Savior, God declares the believer righteous. Thus, we are saved from the penalty of sin. 
At the same time, the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. More correctly, we are united with Christ, making us righteous. Justification doesn't make us righteous. It is merely the declaration that we are righteous. Charles Ryrie explains it this way. Condemning or justifying announces the true and actual state of the person. The wicked person is already wicked when the verdict of condemnation is pronounced. Likewise, the righteous person is already righteous when the verdict of justification is announced. The reformed or covenantal understanding is that the righteousness of Christ imputed to believers comes from the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life without violating the law, thus fulfilling the so-called covenant of works and working the so-called covenant of grace. He had to live a perfect life of not violating the law to fulfill the work, the covenant of works that Adam failed to be able to provide righteousness. Well, I will argue that Christ lived a perfect life because he is the perfect son of God. He is the second person of the Godhead incarnate. He lived a perfect life, not because he needed to be to qualify as the atonement for sin. He qualified as the atonement for sin in eternity past. However, Romans 5.19 talks about believers being made righteous through Christ's obedience. What then is that obedience? This obedience, I understand, as Christ's willing submission to the Father's will and plan of redemption. Rowan McCune in his uh, book says this, he makes this statement, Jesus's unwavering obedience and commitment to the Father's will are demonstrated in the garden when he prays three times, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Matthew 26, 39, 42, and 44. Christ willingly submitted to the Father's will. He was obedient. Philippians tells us he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So because of Christ's righteousness, his death appeases God and fulfills the penalty of sin. And through our faith on Christ, we are united with him, making us righteous as God declares us righteous. So when we accept Christ, instead of we're going to talk about two things, we're going to bring three things real quick. When we accept Christ as Savior, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, uniting us with, uniting us with Christ, making us righteous. God then declares us righteous because we are already made righteous. 
Because of Christ's righteousness, his, his death appeases God and fulfills the penalty of sin. And through our faith on Christ, we are united with him, making us righteous. Therefore, God declares us righteous. Thus, Paul writes in Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God being holy, righteous, and just is able to declare us righteous without violating his holiness because of Christ. Therefore, he is still just and he is able to justify us. In Christ alone, we as sinners have nothing to offer God. We have no internal righteousness to merit us salvation. God, in his grace, decided to make a way for salvation. Christ died in our place as the only acceptable sacrifice for us as sinners. It is Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross and resurrection that makes salvation possible. God's grace operating through faith on Christ's death and resurrection that allows us to be declared righteous. This salvation not only gives us eternal life, but it is secured for eternity. So now I make the appeal, if you have never placed your faith in Christ for salvation, you can do so right now where you are. Or if you are still trying to earn your way to salvation, your work, I tell you, your work will not be enough. Our sin nature prevents us from being able to earn salvation uh, or any kind of merit from God. Salvation is by God's grace alone, operating through faith alone on Christ alone. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the reminders of these truths. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that he willingly submitted and came. And in his righteous state was able, went to the cross to bear our sins, to win salvation. And Father, you have done all this for the praise of your glory because you are the God who saves. We thank you for that. I pray for those who may not have accepted Christ as Savior yet. I pray that through this they will understand things maybe a little better. I pray that your spirit will still be at work in their hearts and in their lives, softening their hearts, that they will come to a place where they will, they will accept salvation. 
We thank you and we praise you, Father. And we pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.